Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to each and every one of you. This is Robert Rogers. I'm the founder of Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. As you do the math, you can figure out that we've been here kicking around ways to get relief from whatever symptoms a person might be experiencing that are associated with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease for now 14 marvelous years. Part of what we do is to air radio show interviews with experts, people have, who have fascinating insights about what really makes a difference to help a person heal from the inside out. And, of course, some of the interviews pertain to individuals who have suggestions of how you can suppress symptoms. My guest today is neurologist Dr. Stasha Gominek who received her medical degree from Baylor College of Medicine and completed her neurology residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. She has had a very business busy neurology practice uh, through all the way through 2016 where she became fascinated, as it turns out, with issues connected and associated with sleep disorders, with particular focus, of course, on individuals who currently experience neurological challenges. So Dr. Dominic is a neurologist who truly has a revolutionary and an insightful perspective of what it really takes for an individual to be able to begin to steer a steady course on the road to recovery. Dr. Gominek, I want to thank you from not only the bottom of my heart, but the hearts of all of our listeners for taking the time today to be a guest on the radio show. Well, thank you, Robert. Thanks for inviting me, and it's my pleasure to be here with you. Um, we had talked about whether or not I, I would start with a summary uh, of last the last program we did. Is that okay with you? That sounds absolutely spectacular because, of course, some persons listening to this interview have not heard the interview from several months ago. Okay, so we had a first interview that I want to summarize what I talked about there, and then we'll, um, second, we'll answer some of the questions that were generated by that interview. So the first uh, part of this is the fact that Parkinson's disease actually has a sleep disorder that precedes it by usually about 20 years. And unfortunately, that may actually be cryptic, or by that I mean hidden from the uh, sufferer of Parkinson's disease. And frequently by the time the Parkinson's disease manifests, the sleep disorder is gone from the point of view of the patient. So that leads to the second point, which is, most of my Parkinson's patients, about 80 to 90 percent, have a specific sleep disorder that they didn't perceive as a problem, which was when they were sitting quietly, um, a little bit more often after meals, but not necessarily, they would fall asleep. And that's so common in the elderly that we have sort of I, internalized that as being normal for old people. It's not really normal, and it may not actually be normal sleep either, uh, and no one's really studied that. I, I began to be interested in, in it because when I started to try to do sleep studies on my patients, the Parkinson's patients were, were the only ones that would say, I sleep fine, and they consistently would say, I sleep fine. So they wouldn't go for a sleep study, which made perfect sense, 
but what I would note is that, one, there was a big literature that showed that they probably had a sleep disorder 20 years ago, and that that falling asleep during the day means that their sleep at night is probably not normal either. The third point is that if we can make sleep go back to normal, and that's the complicated part, if we can get the sleep back to normal, if we can understand the specific chemistry behind the abnormal sleep of Parkinson's disease and we can correct that in some way, we actually have an opportunity for the brain to heal itself. So what Robert said last time we were um, interviewing that I really liked was that he said that sleep is our way of healing from the inside out. Brain disorders like Parkinson's disease are really a slow, progressive change in the ability to make neurotransmitters. And in this particular case, Parkinson's is an inability to make the amount of dopamine that's needed that presents with a movement disorder that we usually treat by giving more dopamine. But if we can repair during sleep our own brain cells, can regenerate the amount of dopamine they need so that they start out the day with enough to get us through the whole day. The uh, fourth point that I made was that there there are two movement disorders of sleep that appear to be um, very specific to Parkinson's disease. One of them, and they're at either end of a continuum, The first is REM behavioral disorder, or REM, that stands for rapid eye movement. So it refers to the fact that some patients act out their dreams aggressively. That is usually a complaint of the spouse more than the patient, and that disease is thought to be a premonitory sign or a warning sign that you will develop Parkinson's disease. The current literature suggests if you have that, that you have In 10 years, you have a one in two chance of developing Parkinson's disease. On the other end of the spectrum is not moving at all. So both of those problems are really not complained of by the patient, but they are a sign that the neurotransmitters that allow us to intermittently wake to light sleep and then roll over those neurotransmitters are not working normally. So we really shouldn't go to bed and wake up in the same exact position that we went to bed. So both of those are things that potentially could be treated. I think they're part of the bigger picture of dopamine and what I'm going to talk about later in this hour, which is acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is another neurotransmitter that I think plays a large role in Parkinson's disease. So the the last point was that the unusual thing about Parkinson's disease is it may be one of the few disorders where the disease itself prevents the sufferer from knowing that they have a sleep disorder so that there's no reason why the person would go to their doctor and say, hey, I'd like to have a sleep study. It doesn't make logical sense to them because actually they don't, feel that they sleep badly, and most of my patients, when asked, would say they don't feel tired when they wake up, and that's how I would learn that they would fall asleep during the day, because the wife would say, well, then why do you fall asleep right after breakfast? 
So there's a specific sleep disorder that hasn't really been investigated very much yet, and I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit uh, later, what I think the basis for it is, and how paradoxically and oddly it's related to gut function. And I'll stop there and uh, go on to our questions now. So we uh, put out an email a little earlier in the week and to our audience and said, uh, what questions do you have about issues with sleep? And we received four quite fascinating questions that I now want to ask Dr. Dominic. First question comes from Gloria. Quote, I tried to take lots of L-tyrosine to help smooth out amino acid therapy on off times at the recommendation of the doctor overseeing the amino acid therapy. I could not sleep because symptoms were so much worse. But when I did sleep, I had the worst nightmares imaginable. I tried this several times, and each time, the same result. Any idea why this is? Okay, I'm going to make a guess at this. But I am not I am not very knowledgeable about amino acid therapy. And Robert and I were discussing before we started this interview that I that's something that I'm going to read about. But so L-tyrosine uh, is used to make dopamine. So potentially it's acting as a source of dopamine. Now we know that dopamine is heavily involved in sleep. And it's my belief, my personal belief, that dopamine is what allows us to dream. The important part about dreaming is you're supposed to do it when you're unconscious. So the definition of having a very, very broken sleep switch is being awake and asleep at the same time or remembering your dreams and feeling as though You're living your dreams. So I'm I'm going to take Gloria's comment as the worst nightmares imaginable. If you remember your dreams, it means that you wake out of them. Normal sleep in a situation where you never wake to an alarm or no one wakes you is always characterized by being in light sleep first, then you fall into another phase that's deep sleep, then you wake to light sleep, and then you wake up. So there's always a transition from REM sleep to light sleep, and then we wake. If you wake, the the definition of being awake is making new memories. That means our hippocampus, the memory machine, flips on. And one of the definitions of being asleep for normal sleepers is while you're in deep sleep, you make no new memories. It's during that phase that we change the video machine that's constantly keeping a record of what happens to us, we flip it over and we download that information. So anytime you remember your dreams, you've actually re, you've gone directly from REM sleep into wake. And for the minute or two before you wake, your hippocampus is doing its job, which is it's coming back online, allowing you to start remembering once you wake up. So what she's described there is it looks like adding a dopamine-like agent has made her dream more. And what she's lacking, I'm going to try to make an argument later in this hour, is enough acetylcholine to keep her asleep. So it's not wrong to take tyrosine. Unfortunately, 
Most Parkinson's patients are also lacking in acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is what allows us to make the transitions into these deeper phases, and acetylcholine keeps us paralyzed in sleep. So it's my belief that she upped the amount of dopamine without matching it with the right amount of acetylcholine. And I'm making that up, so take it for what it's worth. Thank you, Dr. Gominick. I'm sure Glory will greatly appreciate that perspective. The second uh, questions come from Steve. He has a couple, so I'll take them one by one. My questions for the radio show program on sleep are, I generally find that I can fall asleep quite easily, but I very frequently wake up after two or three hours with a lot of pain. I tend to be quite immobile in bed and usually sleep on my back and after some time get quite uncomfortable and find it difficult to move. Are there any suggestions about how I can become more mobile and more comfortable? I've asked several people about this, but nobody has any really good suggestions. Okay, Steve, this is a great question, and it leads into... uh my lecture about acetylcholine. Um, Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that is frequently present in the same cell types that have dopamine. So we've learned over the last 60 years of treating Parkinson's disease that acetylcholine and dopamine and the ratio of the two plays an important role in Parkinson's disease. Now, having said that, you haven't heard about acetylcholine and Parkinson's disease because we haven't really written about it. Despite that, acetylcholine is the major neurotransmitter of the parasympathetic nervous system. And if you just type in sleep and parasympathetic, you'll find that the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous systems, they make up the two halves of what we call the autonomic nervous system. Those two halves of that system are what controls our sleep. So it's the unconscious controls, and the autonomic nervous system controls blood pressure, sweating, the GI tract. So it's things that we consider to be not under our conscious control. The sympathetic and the parasympathetic are sort of... um, sort of at two ends of the spectrum. So the sympathetic um, nervous system is called fight-flight. And we we all know about that because we know that, oh, in a fear situation, the adrenaline goes up. So the sympathetic uses adrenaline. When that goes up, the heart rate goes up. The GI tract um, sometimes can stop, but you can also feel a fluttering in your chest. The, The heart rate and blood pressure go up and you start to sweat. The other end of the spectrum is called rest and digest, and that's the parasympathetic nervous system, and it is run by acetylcholine. Now, it turns out also, if you look through the textbooks about sleep, the parasympathetic nervous system is extremely important in sleep. That's why it's called rest and digest. The heart rate goes down, the blood pressure goes down, it allows the GI tract to work. It turns out that acetylcholine deficiency may be one of the major problems of Parkinson's disease, and it may start 20, 25, 30 years before the lower dopamine results in the movement disorder. So I am a proponent of a new idea, which is that the amount of acetylcholine being seen by certain parts of the brain, probably the brainstem, maybe the basal ganglia, 
is playing a role in the development of Parkinson's disease. Now, to come back to Steve's question, acetylcholine makes us get paralyzed when we move into deep sleep. There's a special set of nuclei in the deeper part of the brain called the brain stem that's been well characterized since the 1960s. So the original experiments were done on cats, and they lesioned or electrically killed the cells that kept the cats paralyzed. And they were able to show that the cats would get up during rapid eye movement sleep and were playing out hunting maneuvers. So they actually got up and started walking around. But they also showed, because they had electrodes on the brain, that they were in REM sleep. So we know that there are specific nuclei in the brainstem that allow us to get paralyzed while we're dreaming. Those cells use acetylcholine to paralyze us. Now, what that means is every single muscle in our body has a little cell assigned to it. And when we get into rapid eye movement sleep, every single muscle has to get perfectly paralyzed so we don't act out our dreams. What that also means is those cells have to be able to turn on those muscles at the end of the REM sleep. So those, those little cells have a control system where they can actually contract the muscles as well as relax the muscles. So what I'm going to say is happening to Steve is we in neurology have concentrated solely on dopamine and Parkinson's disease. But we know that the dopamine gets depleted not just in the basal ganglia that controls movement, but also in the brainstem nuclei that control sleep. We've never really thought about the fact that the acetylcholine may play a role in what happens to our patients. Steve is really describing that he wakes up, which means to me that he has a decrease in the amount of acetylcholine, that waking out of sleep means he doesn't have the right chemical to keep him in the deeper phases, And the reason why he has pain when he wakes up is his muscles are contracting inappropriately. Those muscles that were supposed to be getting paralyzed so he can do repair on his arms and legs are actually contracting. It's the same cause as fibromyalgia, but it's in a different disease. The reason why I think that is because by accident, I happened to give B5, which is pantothenic acid, to one of my patients, and her REM behavioral disorder went away overnight. And you have to get the dose just right, and it was completely by accident. It was because she was taking that amount already. So I now know, because I've done it in over 20 patients, that if you get the B5 dose right, you can actually bring back the ability to transition between the sleep phases and you can actually paralyze the muscles instead of making them contract. That feeling of discomfort awakening us in the middle of the night always means the same thing. If you didn't just fall off the roof and hurt your body physically, when you wake during the night, you should have no pain. Parkinson's frequently goes through a continuum. So if you have enough dopamine that you're able to dream and you're able to contract the muscles, then you'll get this pain that Steve is describing. I think as it progresses further, so the dopamine becomes more depleted, if you don't have enough dopamine to actually transition into REM sleep, then you don't contract your muscles as part of that phase and the pain starts to go away. So most of my Parkinson's patients paradoxically did not have as much pain 
as my other patients. I would document that their their vitamin deficiencies were similar, but they did not develop the same amount of pain. And I suspect it's because they're low on the dopamine. Steve actually has another question, uh, Robert, that I'm just going to read. He And it's related to this. He says that he has a weird thing that happens, which is that my left ankle becomes quite fixed in position and quite uncomfortably. He says that this affects the pain in my back. Um, apparently, there's a link between muscles in the ankle and the back. I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way. One of the things that I noticed when I was first doing sleep studies on my headache patients, so this was not in Parkinson's patients, I would do all these sleep studies, and they would have two things. One, they were young, healthy females. They had reduced amounts of REM. But the second thing they had was these leg movements that we call periodic limb movements of sleep. So we, when we don't know anything about what we're observing, we just give names to it. So we blithely put things in lists, and we make names. I think that those limb movements are actually coming out of a nucleus that's very close to the sleep switches. There's a primitive walking nucleus in the part of the brainstem that's snuggled right up against the sleep switches. When it doesn't work right, this paralysis during sleep doesn't work right. And what we see most commonly is periodic, which means they're timed. They come in a specific uh, frequency and their walking movements. That means one leg alternates with the other. So now as I do more and more sleep studies, I begin to wonder if these movements that I see on the sleep studies are related to my patient's pain. Because one of the ironies is headache has nothing to do with body pain, but a lot of my daily headache sufferers who are again twenty eight to you know forty two, they don't have arthritis, but they have knee pain or hip pain or ankle pain. So they had these pains that I began to wonder if those pains were related to the fact that their lower extremities specifically were not getting paralyzed correctly during their sleep. So it brings us all the way back around to how do we get paralyzed during deep sleep? We only get paralyzed when we're in slow-wave sleep, which is one of the two phases of deep sleep. During slow-wave sleep, we secrete growth hormone, my personal feeling is that that means that we repair our physical body during that phase. That means we have to paralyze all the moving parts so that they're not moving while we're doing the repair. That means any parts that are moving don't get repaired. And you can either see wearing down of the joints or you can see what Steve describes, which is his leg actually tightens up and he happens to wake and realize that he He's not only hurting, but he's tight. His muscles are contracted. He's really observing something that was happening while he was sleeping, and then he woke up. That particular problem is coming, in my view, from a deficiency of acetylcholine, which is actually from a deficiency of, of pantothenic acid. Talk in the second half of this hour about how the gut is related to amount of pantothenic acid that we need and how that panathenic acid goes directly into the brain, makes coenzyme A, and allows us to get into REM sleep, and also allows us to get normally paralyzed. The next question is a question that is uh, submitted by Nancy. My Parkinson's disease medications make me sleepy, so I take them basically 24 hours a day. 
They help me sleep at night, but would it be a deep sleep or not? That's my fear, that I may not be getting enough deep sleep. Okay, Nancy, this is a very, very good question. One of the things I noticed as I got into these sleep disorders more and more, the literature says that the Parkinson's patients have a sleep disorder that starts 20 years before the actual movement disorder starts. So keep in mind, we have no way to diagnose Parkinson's disease in the years prior to the movement disorder. And we as neurologists were trained not to treat the subtle signs we were trained to use dopamine or cinnamon when the signs became limiting in some way. But if there is a hidden, and sleep is hidden to most of us, if there's a hidden um, premonitory phase, if there is something that's happening during the 20 years before the Parkinson's disease presents, then wouldn't we want to fix that? If we fix the sleep disorder, maybe the Parkinson's disease will never present. That's my theory. Now, as soon as my colleague introduced the idea to me that my Parkinson's patients all have sleep disorders, I tried to send them all for sleep studies, and they wouldn't go. And I, I talked about that in the summary. Now, because they wouldn't go, and because we know that the dopamine-containing cells in the brainstem are pivotal in being able to make these transitions, I started using dopamine at bedtime. Now, I was never trained to do that, but I thought, well, maybe this will change their ability to get paralyzed. So that was the very first thing I did. So Nancy is asking about the fact that she gets sleepy during the day. Now, that's another really interesting thing because she has a complaint that the Parkinson's medicines make her sleepy. I had maybe two patients out of, out of 30 years that complained about that. It was very rare, and I could never figure out why because nobody else would complain of that. Now, I also get sleepy when I take my Mirapex. I have restless legs and I have to take it to get to help with my problem that I personally think is Parkinson's related. So my, the, my fasc, the fascinating part for me is why didn't all the other Parkinson's patients get sleepy from dopamine? And I really don't know the answer to that. Okay, so the first thing is this is an unusual complaint. Now, the second thing I told you in the summary was many, many of the Parkinson's patients will just fall asleep in their chair. But the odd thing is if you ask them if they fall asleep during the day, they usually say no. But if their spouse is in the room with them, their spouse will say, oh, yes, you do. And, and frequently they would argue. In fact, it, would, it would sounded so identical from couple to couple. It didn't matter if there's a male or female. They would say, no, I don't fall asleep during the day. And the spouse would say, yes, you do. And they'd say, no, I don't. The, the patient appears to be unaware that they fall asleep during the day. Now, I put that in the back of my head, and I wonder, now, does that mean that they're sleep-deprived? If so, why don't they say they're tired? All of my other patients who don't have Parkinson's disease say, I'm tired when I wake up. I have hundreds of Parkinson's patients. How's your sleep? Fine. How you feel when you wake up? Are you tired? No. I don't think they're stupid or uninformed or can't observe. I think they don't feel tired when they wake up. They're telling me the truth. Now, that makes me wonder if, one, the lack of dopamine that we know they have means that they don't feel tired, and that, that state, that 
So your spouse is observing where they look like they're asleep is really not exactly sleep. And here's why I say that. As I got further into this, I discovered this pantothenic acid and that pantothenic acid becomes acetylcholine and that acetylcholine does two really important things. If you just open the major textbook on sleep, it says acetylcholine governs our level of alertness during the day and it allows us to transition through the phases of sleep at night. Well, once I discovered that most of my Parkinson's patients were panathenic acid deficient, then I began to wonder whether or not this falling asleep state, so the patient themselves doesn't feel drowsy, but they look from their spouse's point of view as though they're asleep. Their eyes are closed. They're very quiet. But what if they're just lacking acetylcholine? What if it's that lack of acetylcholine that makes their frontal lobes just kind of shut down. So they look asleep, but it's not the same state as the rest of his experience in sleep, okay? That would also mean, oh, they're acetylcholine deficient 24 hours a day. During the day, it makes them look like they're inattentive. They actually close their eyes. And it's important to note that they don't have narcolepsy. They don't have an overwhelming feeling of wanting to fall asleep. They sit in the chair, they get comfortable, and it's only when they've been comfortable in the chair for two or three minutes that they look asleep. They don't fall asleep when they're walking. They don't fall asleep behind the wheel unless they're using dopamine. So I think that dopamine runs falling asleep and certain phases of sleep and that our brain is made to have a matching amount of acetylcholine during sleep, which allows us to get into REM, that pair of chemicals work together. If we substitute and we give dopamine without giving acetylcholine, then what we get is someone who gets into deep sleep but doesn't get paralyzed correctly. What we get when we do that early in the phase of the Parkinson's disease, so the REM behavioral disorder comes 10 or 20 years before the dopamine gets depleted. So it's before there's the effect on the basal ganglia that allows us to manifest Parkinson's disease. That results from a lack of acetylcholine. So REM behavioral disorder is 20 years before the Parkinson's disease. On the other hand, the patient who lies in bed without moving, so our very first question that we address, I believe that's a person who has enough dopamine to get into the deeper phases of sleep but does not have enough acetylcholine to be able to wake to light sleep, roll over, and then go back to deep sleep. So I think every single one of these questions actually refers to a hidden feature of Parkinson's disease, which is I think Parkinson's disease is tightly bound to an acetylcholine deficiency. We see this in the rest of the population manifested in attention deficit and attention deficit and hyperactivity. So at the same time that we saw sleep disorders start to escalate in the 1980s, that's when our children started to be diagnosed with ADHD and ADD. If you read into the ADHD literature, what you'll find is these kids probably have an acetylcholine deficiency 
because they don't have enough D5 being made by their gut. Therefore, their frontal lobes don't have enough acetylcholine to direct their attention. So I believe that they have an acetylcholine deficiency. They don't have Parkinson's disease. They just have an acetylcholine deficiency. I'm going to bring all that together in a package in the second half of this. Nancy also follows up with, I also take melatonin on a regular basis. Carbohydrates, too, put me to sleep, so I often eat rice cakes before bed. So in my, my answer to Nancy is there's nothing wrong with taking melatonin. It's the natural chemical we use to get sleepy. In my patients, um, it allows you to fall asleep, but it doesn't keep you asleep. And in my book, anything that helps you sleep that makes you feel good when you wake up or makes you feel better when you wake up is the right thing for you at that moment. So I'm not against sleeping pills. Most of my Parkinson's patients don't need sleeping pills, and Nancy's complaint is that she gets sleepy. I believe that the phase that she's in of Parkinson's disease is making the dopamine um, make her brain want to go to sleep all day long because she's sleep-deprived. And what I saw in my patients, we're going to talk at the uh, second half of this about right sleep and what that means. Right sleep is a is a vitamin treatment protocol that brings back the gut bacteria and supplies B vitamins. And what I saw in my Parkinson's patients was not just that their movement disorder got better, but that their sleep got better. It's a difficult thing to measure in the Parkinson's population because they don't usually complain of being tired during the day. But in most of my Parkinson's patients, I would have the spouse and the patient focus instead on how do you do during the day. I want you to get to a point with these vitamins that you, one, don't feel tired during the day. And if you don't have that now, then the second thing I want you to notice is that you don't fall asleep or look asleep after any of the meals, that you stay awake the whole day and that the spouse is the observer of that. That was my only way of measuring whether or not we got the acetylcholine level to where it should be during the day. And I actually successfully did that in many of my patients. Once I can get something that tells us that the patient is sleeping better, so we're unconscious, and most of Parkinson's patients sleep for 10 hours, they're unconscious. They can't observe anything going on. That means you have to have something to measure. There's no blood test. So I have to be able to feed back to the patient, okay, here's what you watch. And what I would usually record in those patients was, if we can get you to be alert and awake all day long, you can sit through your favorite programs, three hours of them, and not fall asleep, then I'm doing my job. We got the B vitamins right. We got the vitamin D right. And it was about that time that they start noticing that they need less dopamine during the day. And to my way of thinking, that means that their own brain is generating enough dopamine to actually take them through the whole day and they don't need supplementary dopamine. Do we have any other questions, Robert? One more from Julie. What about those of us who are up because we need to use the bathroom? And how does one deal with the Parkinson's disease drugs when the body awakes, awakens, seeming to need them during the night? And then lastly, she asked, lastly, it is often very difficult to walk in the early morning hours, which makes the trips very difficult. 
this is a complicated problem because the walking is due to the having amount of dopamine. So what I would try to do with Julie, um, and keep in mind I'm giving you something that has not been published yet. I have not published this observation yet. I have a couple of articles on my website that are directly about my observations of my Parkinson's patients. Um, so I'll talk about that at the end. But I'm talking about something that the Parkinson's disease experts have not addressed yet. They haven't observed it yet. And because it has a vitamin word in it, they aren't very receptive to it. So, one, bad sleep from any cause leads to inability to get into deep sleep. When you don't get into deep sleep, you don't have antidiuretic hormone. So antidiuretic hormone is secreted from the brain, and it turns off the kidney production of urine. And in every normal human, we were supposed to make enough of that so that we made only enough urine so that our bladder wouldn't be full to overflowing and we would not wake up. So we actually suppress hunger, we suppress bowel movements, and we suppress urine production at night to give us eight protected hours just to repair. So if you have to wake up to pee, you are actually not getting into deep sleep. And I I spend a fair amount of time in the last hour, the first um, radio broadcast we did, talking about that. So the second issue is, if when you get up to walk, it's very difficult, it means that you don't have enough dopamine. So there's no reason why you can't use dopamine during the night. I did that a lot in my patients, and they actually started off the day a lot better. So if you wake up anyway, there's no reason why you can't take dopamine during the night. You might notice what our first um, questioner noticed that Gloria asked about, which is that she had nightmares. So if you up the dopamine at night and you don't up the acetylcholine, then you may actually get into REM sleep and wake up while you're there. So it it does make it hard to manage, and the best you can do, every single person with Parkinson's disease, in my view, is unique. There are many roads to Parkinson's disease. There, it's not one disease. And each person is at their own path, their own location on the path of Parkinson's. That means each person has to manipulate their dopamine, and I feel strongly has to manipulate the amount of acetylcholine until it fits with their needs. And as they get better, and you only get better when you sleep better. So one of the very important things about Parkinson's disease since the very beginning of its description was that each patient progresses at a different rate. That means some people don't have a very bad sleep disorder. If their vitamin D is pretty good and they are presenting with Parkinson's disease because they have a gene gene that predisposes to them, they can last with the same amount of cinnamon for 20 years. The next patient who comes in may progress dramatically to being very disabled in five years. We've never had an answer about that. I believe that it has to do with how good the sleep is and how good the vitamin D level is plays a huge role in that. I believe that Parkinson's disease is unique. Everybody on the planet, almost everybody now, is vitamin D deficient, but not everybody on the planet gets Parkinson's disease. So the people who develop Parkinson's disease have a second hit. They're vitamin D deficient, but the second hit is that they are also acetylcholine deficient. They have a problem with their uh, panathetic acid, their B5 level, and that predisposes 
to um, problematic sleep, and that particular disorder leads, in my view, to Parkinson's disease. Robert, unless you have another question, I'm going to take the opportunity to take that into the next phase, which is going to talk about the gut, panathenic acid, and what scientific literature we have. Would that be all right? That sounds fantastic. This is your host, Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Stasha Gominick, who is discussing uh, her fascinating perspectives on how individuals can actually get the sleep they need to heal. So now you're going to go into an additional explanation of gut disorders and Parkinson's disease and other fascinating topics. Okay, and as a preamble, um, let me say that I think that um, to understand this in depth, you really need to go to my website, uh, which is www.dr or doctor, no period, drgomanac.com. I don't have a specific location there for Parkinson's disease, but if you go to the section that says for clinicians and you go to the very bottom, I have two essays that are written about what I observed in my patients. And they're uh, numbered three and four. So I recommend those to you. The entire um, long journey of me learning about the vitamin relationship uh, started with vitamin D. So vitamin D is the first domino. When the vitamin D goes low, because we are not out in the sun anymore, the vitamin D that we make on our skin is actually fed to the bacteria in our gut. So in the last five years, there's been a big upsurge in the observation that everybody with Parkinson's disease has the wrong microbiome. Well, that's not distinctive in any way because it turns out that most of the people on the planet have the wrong microbiome. So in my view, it is the vitamin D deficiency that led to the change in the makeup of the species that are supposed to exist in our belly. It turns out that the second observation I made was, gee, if some of these bacteria that were supposed to be there make the B vitamins, then it's very likely that the four species that are now well known to be the normal foursome that exist in all mammals on the planet, and by the way, they show up there in the gut spontaneously. So there's a very good summary article that I refer to on my site that's from The Economist magazine that summarizes the GI, GI literature over the last 20 years and tells us that if you go around the planet and you test the poop of three-month-old babies, they are not taking probiotics, they're breastfeeding, they all have these four specific species. No matter where you live on the planet, within three months, the baby gets colonized by these four species. Now, that's only in babies who are living outside and living a normal life. If the baby's inside and has GI tract problems, they have the wrong microbiome. They don't have those same four species. So if there's an underlying idea that these four bacteria exist spontaneously in every mammal on the planet, and those bacteria have been documented to make B vitamins, it's very likely that the original source for every single animal on the planet of the B vitamins is not the food, it's from the bacteria. So we go back a little further. Bacteria showed up on the planet first. They made B vitamins. Fungus is the first 
inhabitant of the planet that we know of that makes D. Then come plants. Fungus and plants make D2, which is the more primitive form. Then animals arrive and we make D3. Based on that evolutionary idea, I think that since we made multicellular organisms that had a GI tract, that had bacteria inside them, it was the poop bacteria supplying the eight-pack of the B vitamins. That eight-pack of B vitamins is pivotal for sleep. We have only really written about B12. B12 has a specific and very special life of its own. But B5 is another vitamin that's been completely overlooked since the 1970s. B5 is actually not in any food. It is coenzyme A that is in every food. And we use the enzymes of the bacteria that live in our gut to convert the coenzyme A that's in every food over five enzymatic steps. It's not that simple. We have to actually have five separate enzymes, and they are only provided by the intestinal bacteria, the normal intestinal bacteria, that converts then coenzyme A to B5, pantothenic acid. We now know the specific anatomy of the pump that pumps in pantothenic acid. That pump has now been made. It's actually been specifically every single DNA fragment has been um, isolated. It's been cloned. That same pump that pumps it in in the gut pumps it into the brain. So there is a very specific system that takes B5 that's produced in the gut, goes directly to the blood, into the CSF, and then goes into the brain. Now, the weird thing that happened to me was I was fascinated with sleep, not this other stuff. I'm not interested in the GI tract. I'm a neurologist. So what happened was I was doing vitamin D for two years. My patients all got better. And then they all started to fail, and then a patient walked in the door with a book about panathenic acid and pain, and it turns out that she brought it to me because the references referred to the fact that panathenic acid was pivotal for sleep. So they refer to these old, old references from the 1950s that show that if you can take out coenzyme A completely from the food, and they haven't repeated these experiments because they were done on convicts, it was very difficult to do, they force-fed them two feeds, but they showed that they became insomniacs in two weeks. With that information and the information that B5 would make people sleep, and because my patients were failing, if they'd been doing fine, I wouldn't have been the least bit interested. So I got about 50 patients who I gave 400 milligrams of panathenic acid. Because I knew nothing about the B vitamins, I gave them another preparation called B100, that means it has all eight Bs. They always should come in as an eight-pack. It had 100 milligrams or 100 micrograms of each of them. Forty of the 50 came back and yelled at me, and they all said similar things. They said, this 400 milligrams of panathenic acid made me agitated. I was all buzzed up. I only took it for two days because I couldn't sleep at all. Well, number one, why did the book recommend 400 milligrams if that's the case? I was really upset because I didn't know anything about the B vitamins, and I just took it off. You know, I just recommended it from the health food store. Now, two or three people came back and said, this B100 that you gave me, that panathenic acid was terrible. It made me all revved up, and I couldn't sleep at all. But I stopped it, and then I did this B100. Okay, so the B100 has 100 milligrams of panathenic acid. They said, my sleep became normal in two days. It was 
amazing. And my pain went away in two days. Now, one, I, I just couldn't believe that any vitamin would actually go up into the head and act like a neurotransmitter. It acts like a drug. I mean, these are all the drugs that I use as a neurologist. You take it, and that night you sleep better. I happen to be taking exactly the same therapy as my patients. The 400 milligrams of panathenic acid made me have terrible restless legs. It still does, even 5 milligrams. And the panathenic acid at 100 milligrams did exactly the same thing for me. It made my sleep go back to normal, and my pain went away in two days. Now, my first struggle was, this is acting like a neurotransmitter, I just don't see how the body could be designed to have something as up to chance as some bugs in my belly that make this vitamin that could control my whole nervous system. But in actual fact, I've been doing this for five years. I think that the only supply of B5 comes from the gut, and it comes from the gut bacteria. And by accident, it turns out that the vitamin D that I was supplementing with was one of the factors that those four that are supposed to be there needed as a growth factor. The second thing they wanted was all the B vitamins that the foursome normally makes. So what I discovered in about four months was when you take D and you take it in a big enough dose that your level is 60 to 80, which is where all my patients were. I had 1,500 patients at a D level, 60 to 80, and I added B100 to that. In three months, that environment that you're creating in the GI tract is perfect to grow back the four normal species. Once they grow back, my patients began in month four, and I had the same thing. Month four and month five, we started to be sleepless again, and the pain came back. That means this B5 that's made by the intestinal bacteria is very, very dose-dependent. If you get the dose right, the sleep is perfect. If you go too high, the sleep is terrible and pain results. If you go too low, the sleep is terrible and pain results. So I began to use pantothenic acid more liberally, and it was because I was using it in more, I was very paranoid about the dosing because I had side effects. So in month four and a half, because I was, too stupid to pay attention to what I was telling my patients, I began to have terrible pain again, and I stopped the B100, and it went away. So I now have 5,000 patients who were able to convert their intestinal bacteria back to normal. The normal foursome supplied the amount of B5 that we were designed to have every day, and I think that that B5 production is minute to minute, and what I saw in my Parkinson's patients when I do this regimen is that Falling asleep during the day goes away. Their level of attention during the day comes back to normal. You get their sleep right at night with a combination of B and the right amount of Bs. They start waking up feeling great. They don't need the same amount of dopamine. So it's not affecting their dopamine production directly. It is giving back the amount of acetylcholine directly as B5 during the night. And once the brain has the right pair of neurotransmitters, namely it has dopamine and acetylcholine, then they start to see dramatic changes in their sleep. Now, in the patients who don't have Parkinson's disease but have REM behavioral disorder, that regimen takes away that REM behavioral disorder almost overnight. It's 
amazing. And I've now done that in over 10 patients with REM behavioral disorder. The piece that I'm not really sure about is how long do we have to give extra? So let's say I bring back your intestinal bacteria. They can't make extra. And it's my idea that they're, before the Parkinson's disease begins to manifest, there's 20 years where there wasn't enough acetylcholine. That means there are 20 years of sleep repairs that have been deferred. What I saw in my other patients with neurologic illness is if I can give them enough Bs, extra Bs, so what the D seems to do is it encourages the brain to stay in deep sleep longer. That means that the brain makes more repairs. I don't know how to do it, but the brain remembers how to do it. And it actually keeps a list of every single deferred repair. I think that opens a window of opportunity for all of our Parkinson's patients. If we can give them the raw material that their brain asks for, they can get back into these deeper phases and they can start to repair synuclein deposits. We know that synuclein can actually be extruded from the cell. If the cell in the basal ganglia is not dead, but it has a Lewy body, it has a collection of this gummy synuclein, we know that it can be extruded. We know that there are animal models where you can actually show that given the right neurotransmitters, those cells can completely reverse the process. They can actually show that there are no Lewy bodies at the end. I think that that process is heavily linked to sleep. I think it's linked to D. The link to D comes out of the literature that shows that animals that hibernate use synuclein, hyperphosphorylate the synuclein in their brain while they're hibernating. So before they actually go into hibernation, they form little premonitory Lewy bodies. They make little gumballs of hyperphosphorylated synuclein. When they wake up from, from hibernation, they dephosphorylate the synuclein and they extrude it from the cell. That's been shown in two different species. What is it that controls hibernation in these cells? It's D. So there's a D link to Parkinson's disease. But the second thing is the D isn't the only player. You have to get the acetylcholine levels back in order to see this effect. The final piece that to me proves that B5 is linked is there is now a group of little kids who walk in to pediatric neurologists with Parkinsonian syndromes at age 10. Those kids are said to have a PANK, P-A-N-K, disorder. They have a pantothenate kinase deficiency. They have a mutation in the ability to take pantothenic acid back to coenzyme A. So once the pantothenic acid enters the brain, it then has to be converted to coenzyme A. We know that children who come in with a severe neurologic disorder at age 10, so they don't present at birth, they present 10 years later, they have a mutation. Interestingly, all of those kids have relatives that have presented with routine Parkinson's disease at age 60, age 50, age 80. They have the same mutation, but they don't present with the disease until elderly age. I think it's because the children are being born to mothers 
who are D deficient, who have the wrong microbiome, that child is D deficient, they're born with the wrong microbiome, they have lived the first 10 years of their life without D5 supply, and they therefore develop the Parkinson's disease 10 years later. Their grandpa didn't start to be low in B5 until he was 50 and then presented with Parkinson's disease 15 years later. So I think that there is a body of literature that suggests that Parkinson's disease doesn't start to affect the brain until the microbiome goes bad. There's a whole body of literature now showing that all Parkinson's patients have the wrong microbiome. As far as I know, I'm the first person to actually report a way to naturally bring the microbiome back, bring back the supply of panathenic acid, and supply the neurotransmitters that are needed to recover normal sleep. If you want to do this, I'm happy to help you. I actually do, uh, I do coaching. Um, you must have your own neurologist. I do it virtually over the Internet. Every single person that has their own neurologist can do this in parallel. Your neurologist will not know about acetylcholine and the effects in Parkinson's disease. It's a brand new idea. If you want to do it on your own, I have a workbook that allows you to actually follow the steps that are necessary. It takes you through every single week for an entire year of how to bring your intestinal bacteria back to normal. So you can do it on your own, and then you can also ask for personal help if you need it. And these vitamin regimens will not hurt you. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. And vitamin D is dangerous stuff. You can never take vitamin D without doing vitamin D blood levels. You must have access to your blood levels, and you must learn about it. You personally are the only person on the planet who will be able to read what your body is telling you about what these supplements are doing to you and for you. And they can take your sleep away and they can really hurt you if you don't pay attention to the specifics. Robert, I'm going to end there and ask if there are any questions that have occurred to you as we're about to end the hour. How can a listener obtain that workbook that you refer to? If you go to my website, and I'll I'll say it again a little more slowly, I have a very unique name. I'm the only Gomanac in the entire world. So even if you don't get it right, if you just put in something like Gomanac and vitamin D, my name will pop up. So my website is www.dr, no period, Gomanac, G-O-M-I-N-A-K.com. As soon as this website comes up, you'll see a little menu item that you can click on for the workbook. I would really encourage you to read the home page that comes up because I tell you a lot about how to use the site, where to go to learn about it. I really encourage you to read in the learning section. It's not specifically about Parkinson's disease, but there's a lot of background information that you need to use these vitamins safely. So it tells you about vitamins in sleep, D in sleep, I would really recommend if, the, if you're science-minded, go to the Four Clinicians site. There are two articles there that describe vitamin D in sleep causing the epidemic of sleep disorders. There's a second one that links panathenic acid to autoimmune disease. And following those are the two other articles I described that have to do with B5 and Parkinson's specifically. 
And then once you learn a little bit, go to the workbook. The workbook doesn't give you much in the way of background information. It directs you what to do every single week, how to, how to document your sleep, how to document your D levels, when certain things are going to happen to you. It reminds you to do certain things. So it's your workbook. It's not the book about the information. It's a workbook for you to help you, remind you to stay on track throughout the year. How would a listener sign up to be able to obtain ongoing coaching with you? If you go on my site, um, at the at the very uh, first thing that comes up is the homepage. Uh, the first sentence says, if you want individual help, click here. That'll take you to a page that allows you to schedule. What you will schedule with me will be a getting to know you visit, which is a half an hour, and um, it'll cost you $97. And we'll talk about whether or not I think that it would be worth our while to work together. Most of the time, what I will propose to you will be a whole year's worth of follow-up because my experience has been that most of my patients really need a year's worth of input. On the other hand, sometimes patients uh, hear about the program, don't want to really invest in it a whole year, and really want to try most of it on their own and then come back to me if they run into problems. So there's more than one possible program, and that half-an-hour visit allows us to discuss what those are and what would be tailor-made to your needs. Parkinson's Recovery is dedicated to providing information to our global listeners about cutting-edge perspectives and revolutionary ideas, and we've certainly accomplished that feat today with your incredible insights and experience and perspectives. If there's one thing, one point, one idea that you want to make sure listeners remember about this particular interview, what would it be? Unfortunately, Parkinson's disease brings with it a sleep disorder that is completely silent. The patient is not aware of it, but it's always there. And if we can make your sleep better, and again, as I said, that'll mean that your alertness during the day will be better. If you know your sleep is disordered, you're actually ahead of the game because then you can observe if your sleep gets better. But every single person with Parkinson's disease has a problem with their sleep in the background. And because we've left sleep for last, we neurologists have not really learned much about the sleep disorders of Parkinson's. Dr. Gominick, on behalf of our many thousands of listeners of Parkinson's Recovery Radio, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be a guest on the radio show today. Your insights, your perspectives, your recommendations are greatly appreciated by many, many individuals. Robert, I want to thank you for making the site that you've made. You do a really good job, and you, you perform a very valuable service for your clients. I'm, I really appreciate what you do. Well, it's an honor and a privilege to do just that. Thank you so much for those kind words. And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound that are pretty mopey today, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and most importantly, where all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you're listening to this interview with Dr. Gominick today, that you indeed are one of many other individuals who are on the road to recovery. Thank you so much for joining us at Parkinson's Recovery today.
This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty ultra strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.